and there was a hydrant over there. So we tried to, well, we did secure that hydrant. And um, once we realized how much fire was there, securing that hydrant, we had the flame. It was almost like a devil hand come across with fire, and it literally pushed us back uh, up against the building. Logbook Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Dawson, and joining me today with co-hosting duties uh, from episode one, Wheat Baldwin. Uh, Wheat, welcome back, and thanks for uh, being my wingman. Thanks, Robbie. Glad to be here. Appreciate all the support and the help. And uh, for anybody who's involved, been involved in the business of emergency services, you can clearly relate to this. Uh, the idea that there's one call or one fire call or one EMS run or one car crash or a flood or a hurricane or some hazardous materials calls that can stick out vividly in your mind's eye. Some may stand out because of the impact you had on someone's life. It may, be, may have been a challenge involved for you to accomplish your goals, or it may have been something about the lessons learned that make that point in time stand out for you. And in doing some research for today's podcast episode and this fire that we're gonna talk about a little bit more, uh, and when I got in touch with our two guests, it was clear to me that this was an incident like that for them. Uh, it was one of those incidents that stands out. Just the recall these two gentlemen had right off the bat when I started asking questions, do you remember the fire? And I got quoted back dates and times and the scene as it was, and it just impacted me that this, this incident stood out for them. And I appreciate their time to sit with us today and, and talk a little bit about that epic incident that happened in the city of Richmond so many years ago. With that, please welcome two veterans of the Richmond, Virginia Department of Fire and Emergency Services. Captain Sylvester Henderson, hello, s- still active and on the job, and uh, Captain Keith Andes, from, also from Richmond. Appreciate the invitation. But now retired and still connected to the fire service Absolutely. very well. Absolutely, the fire yeah. department always, always will be my umbilical cord, for and sure. We will talk just a bit about that as well, too, as we get along. So uh, let, just to, so that everybody knows you guys a little better, let's talk a little bit about your background and history and Uh, Captain Henderson, let's uh, start with you. How did you get involved in the fire service starting off, and how long ago was that? Well, um, my fire career started off, I was working with this company, World Access, here in Richmond, a great company, but I realized that I needed a career. And with um, about 2 or $3 in my pocket, most of it changed. I went on lunch break, and I ran across this fireman who was whistling and happy, walking to McDonald's, and I thought he was excessively happy for McDonald's, and... I asked him, I said, are you okay? You're kind of happy to be going to McDonald's. He said, I'm on a four-day break. And I said, is that a vacation? He said, no, just four days break. And I work in the fire department. I'm going down to the river, got my jet skis. And right then and there, I realized I needed to do something different. And I said, can I be a fireman? And after that, he said, well, today's the last day. They're taking applications. They stopped at 4 o'clock. I didn't go to McDonald's, jumped in my Hyundai, ran down to the Ash Center, met Miss Tracy Schools, fell out the last application, and uh, it was about 4,000 applications. I was one of the 12 they hired, and that guy turned out to be Randy Emerson. <laughs> hired so. 12 out of 4,000. Mm-hmm. Crazy numbers. Yep. Shout, nice out, numbers. shout out to Randy for the recruitment, huh? Absolutely. <laughs> he got me involved, and uh, once I got in, it was uh, like a rite of passage. Um, it, was, it was something that I was always destined to do, but... Um, Randy made it happen that day. He gave me the insight, and once I came in, he just saw a 
not only a career, but just a way of life that has changed everything and um, have me where I'm at today. What just year was as that? Keith said that was an instant brotherhood. Oh, absolutely, it it was. Um, this was '93. Um, got hired August of '93, so um, this was just prior to that. Um, once I um, came in, got hired, saw the numbers as far as how many applicants there were. You tend to appreciate right then and there, you know, what, what opportunity you was given. And as the career went on, you still can appreciate those opportunities, especially the individuals that you meet, such as uh, Keith Andy's here <laughs> and his family as well. But so many opportunities, and then the the privilege of just being able to help people. Um, one of the positions that I've always liked is being that end user or that transition piece where tax dollars convert to service. I want to be there for that exchange. Sure. Being there riding on the truck, it allows you that opportunity. Tell us a little bit about your career. You obviously went, did you go right, I've talked to some folks and they go to the station and then do the recruit academy. Did you go right straight to the academy and then back to the, out to the station? Well, it was a different day and time. I um, went in and spent some time in beautiful downtown Sanson at our academy. And uh, after a successful uh, graduation from the academy, I started at station six. I worked there a couple of years, transferred to station, well, Task Force 22. And from Task Force 22, went to Engine 17, got promoted on Engine 17, then went over to Rescue 2. Rescue 2 to the safety officer. Then I was tagged with going downtown as the safety officer um, supervisor. And from there, um, got promoted again to captain. And once I made captain, I uh, went back to 6 where I started at which was phenomenal. Uh, from there, I was transferred to Station 25. And, well, I'm sorry, Station 5. Um, that was interesting. So once I got to Station 5, I just figured my career would end at Station 5. And shortly after that, I ended up where I'm at now, Station 25. So And, and still not finished. So and still uh, not finished. You've also got a, a little bit of family lineage with the fire service, too. Your brother's in the fire service and brother-in-law? Yeah, both. I um, have a brother-in-law, uh, Vince. Uh, he's down at uh, Chesterfield. He's BC there. And my brother, Victor, he's also with uh, Chesterfield, a uh, firefighter. And I uh, have a um, late uncle who was the uh, first African-American uh, firefighter in uh, Deer Park, New York. Oh, interesting. So he's a volunteer, but um, it's still the same work. Yep. And uh, I work with Vince and um, Victor, both two great guys. I miss miss them, wor miss working with them and everybody else in the department when I was in my time in Chesterfield, and uh, wish them both the best to fail tuned in here and listen to. So it makes an interesting fine. Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> yes, it does. Um, actually, I, I know when Victor was at, um, I think it was at Station Nine one time, and uh, they asked me to come up there. It was, uh, Keith Diggs was there working with them, and Ziggy. they wanted me to come up and you know help them with their um, Christmas dinner, and uh, I helped them out. And after that, they were so happy and fortunate. But I said, look, I can't do this anymore. You guys can take care of from here. Victor, yeah. Victor's a good cook uh, as well. I understand. He's not bad. He's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no sibling robbery there at all. Not at all. Not at all. All right, Keith. Uh, what about you? How did you get your start? A little bit different story. I was a Richmond kid, born and raised. Um, started out in Westover Hill School and went to George With High School. And they used to have a fire show every year over at the Old City Stadium. And so my parents would take me over there. And it was just, hey, it was like living my dream. So I started to 
uh, think about it and you know it was something that I really wanted to make happen in the meantime I would um started to work for city of richmond uh, gas and water spent two years there saw that they were giving the test for the city and so i went and did that um, when i got over there to take the test it was at the old egyptian building at a mcv hospital and it was a, a line just like what sylvester was saying i had no idea i thought hey, maybe 10 or 12 people would want to do this right job and, but it was thousands so uh came in pretty decently and got the phone call um uh, a little bit different i was i actually got married on uh january the 28th of 1978 and i came into the department in january 30th of 1978 so i had a full beard when i got married <laughs> i went to dinner with family and things on that sunday my wife actually gave me a haircut and shaved my beard so that i could report for duty that monday it was a uh, quick, quick honeymoon, huh? It, very quick, <laughs> very quick. Uh, we'll get into that no, no, later, no, at a later it's, date. It's but, a different uh, podcast. Yeah, but um, so then uh, at the time, training academy was eight weeks, and so I uh, completed that, went over to Station 1, spent 23 years at Station 1 over in Churchill. Um, they started to transition from trucks and engines and things, and I said, you know, I, I think I'll uh, – a good crew, you know, I enjoyed my crew there, but I had worked with some individuals over at 11. I always wanted to work with them, so I uh, went to uh, Station 11. I think I served over there for two years. Uh, started to think about, you know, retirement and say, well, you know, maybe go to the officer route. So I started to study and took the test for lieutenant. Fortunate enough, I got promoted and went to Station 5. Stayed there for a little while, uh, I think two or three years, and then uh, Chief Creasy asked if I would um, serve as a safety officer. It was kind of implementing the program. And I said, yeah, you know, didn't know too much about it. Uh, I said, well, you're going to send me to classes so I know what I'm, uh, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll do that. And I never went to a class yeah, or anything. Job training. Yeah, you know, and I'm saying, why, you know, what if I'm an unsafe person and yet you're asking me to be the safety officer? So anyway. Served there for about four months, got promoted to captain, and went to Station 15. And I think I uh, stayed there for two or three years and then finished my career uh, in 2013 over at Station 8. But, Proud to serve. But uh, how, what year did you start? What was it? 1978. So I served 35 and a half years in the, in the fire department. And uh, so spending 35 years on active duty, you're still pretty well connected to the, to the folks in Richmond, too. I am. What, what are you I, doing there? I've been blessed and honored to serve as um, – president of local 995 uh, with the International Association of Firefighters. Uh, entering my 12th year doing that. Uh, like I said before, it's my umbilical cord to the department. Um, we have a great department and the men and women that work there, uh, I can't say enough about them, but we also have to make sure they're safe, health, healthy, and the benefits are there as well. And so uh, uh, we work hard on that effort. And um, But yeah, I am blessed to do what I'm doing and until I leave this earth, I will serve whatever capacity that I can to make sure that our firefighters are as well paid as they possibly can, but their health and safety is uh, foremost. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Absolutely. On their behalf, I'm sure they're, they Absolutely. much appreciate the work you do. And having been on at the General Assembly, I know that's uh, not a fun job some it's, days. It's not. It's not. So uh, you, you also got a pretty tight family lineage to the fire service you want to share that I, I do I'm proud to uh, say I have two daughters in the fire service today uh, one serves in the city of Richmond she's uh, presently at station 15 and then I have a younger uh, daughter 
that serves down in St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, she's been a, probably a year, 18 months on the job now, just finished her probationary period back in September. Uh, she's loving it. Uh, quick thing on my uh, middle daughter, when she told me, broke the news that she wanted to be a firefighter, uh, she called, she was just finishing up her degree over at uh, VCU, and she called me and she said, hey, I want to come by the fire station over on uh, Lee Street, and I said, sure, you know, come on over. Knocked on the door, and so I took her into the office and sat down, and we weren't even in there for about a minute or two minutes. She said, I want to go sit on the fire truck, and I said, okay, you know, here's a 20-year-old, 19, 20-year-old, uh, I said, okay, you know, so she opened the door, got up in the officer's uh, seat, and took a big old breath, and she said, Dad, she said, I don't know what I want to do in my life, and I said, what's that, and she said, I want to be a firefighter, it blew me away, <laughs> I, it, because she never, ever talked about it or anything else, and I, so I asked her, I said, Kelly, why do you want to be a firefighter, and she said, Dad, she said, I don't care what kind of day you had, you always came home with a positive attitude and spoke highly about the fire department and the citizen you served. And she said, I want that for my life too. I said, you go for it. And I said, you, you, can, you can go about it two different ways. You can make a good name for yourself or you can make a bad name for yourself. But I said, the first impact, the first day, that's where you will make your name. And I said, it will live with you throughout your career, good or bad. And so, uh, I didn't ever say it. I didn't make any phone call. I didn't say anything to anybody. And so when she uh, took the test, came out okay, she went, started, you know, the fire training course, then everybody started putting her last name together. And she and people would come up and say, you got the daughter in them? Yeah, yeah, you know. But uh, so, yeah, absolutely, I'm proud of both of them. Um, I'm glad they chose that. And um, I, I know that they will get what I got out of it, and that's the best uh, that life can offer in serving in the fire department. Well, we appreciate them, too. And you got a – I think you were sharing with me your last day on the on the rig was riding with her, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, they made it happen to where I was able to serve and uh, finish up my last day with uh, her, and uh, it, it was great. Uh, we reminisced quite a bit and uh, shed a few tears quite a bit. And uh, But, yeah, I'm – I'm very, very proud of what she's accomplished. And so the far. family tradition continues. Absolutely. So. And to you know, to give props to the other side too, she's married to a firefighter whose father also served in the Richmond Fire Department. So the Stowells, oh, yes, uh, they got a, they have a, a son also uh, that uh, serves in it. So yeah, the lineage is is deep. Wow, that's good stuff. Absolutely. So uh, let's let's dive into this incident. And uh, if anybody hadn't figured it out yet, one of the bigger incidents that happened in Richmond in the past several decades uh, occurred on March 26, 2004, uh, at a building under construction on Broad Street in downtown Richmond. Uh, the building was under construction as a five-story, I think, five-story apartment slash dormitory building. Yes, it was a. Um, I think there was four residential stories above a commercial above commercial <laughs> so it was a, so it was five stories tall but i think the top four floors were the res was the residence and wood frame and yep. wood frame wood frame hmm. over steel or concrete how they kind of skirt some of the uh, mm -hmm. the building codes mm -hmm. so um it and it was a privately owned building but it was to be a dormitory for vcu virginia commonwealth university yes right? yes there was a relationship they had with vcu at right. the time and i'm uh i Doing a little research for this, I found uh, some old uh, newspaper articles and a firehouse.com article on the fire. And just, um, you know, I'm big into quotes and in, in historical newspapers. And some of the quotes from the firehouse.com article, this is a quote from uh, a citizen that was there 
He says, quote, it was like looking into the gaping maw of hell, he said. It was the most horrible and amazing thing I've ever seen. And uh, there was a uh, city building inspector who was there as well, work, helping with some crowd control. And he said, it's just pandemonium. The flames just kept on spreading. And uh, that's kind of the incident we want to talk about here today, gentlemen. And I understand um, you guys were some of the first folks that got there. And, Keith, this was your first do area? Was that yes. what you told me? Yes, but you weren't the first one there, were you? No, somebody else was. Another company was. I think they blocked <laughs> the doors intentionally so we couldn't get out. Uh. We were already all ready to go. We were even hitting the air horn, waiting for them to move out Get of our out way. Out of so the way. Absolutely. His pranks earlier, <laughs> I can see that. Actually. Uh, absolutely. Now, Sylvester, uh, they'd come by to get some EMS supplies and things, so uh, uh, they were out front and when the call came in. But it was a beautiful day. Uh, you know, just windy. But Which station uh, were you at then? Station 5 over on Lee Street. Sure. Yep. So, so you were only blocks away. Blocks away, yes, sir. So Sylvester, you were a lieutenant at the time, riding riding an engine. Tell tell us how that all went down and how you discovered there was this little incident going on on Broad Street. Well, actually, I was um, at Rescue Two, very significant to this incident. So being on a uh, rescue truck, we were just clearing up from another incident, and of course, we knew we had to um, stop by, grab a few um, EMS uh, gear. But at the time, we noticed the smoke that was billowing up. And of course, Richmonder, um, very familiar, was right along my um, bus route where I used to go to school at, over at uh, Benjamin Graves back in the day. So pretty much familiar with the district. And um, once we saw the smoke billowing up, um, you knew we had to jump on everyone. But there was so much radio traffic that was going on at the time. Uh, about this fire or just About everything else. Radio radio. Our system was a little different, and this really you know, brought about a, a well-needed change in how we not only uh, dispatch, but operate our uh, communication piece for incidents. So of course, seeing the, the smoke, we just started heading that direction. And once the radio uh, traffic cleared up where we could uh, dispatch, well, acknowledge what we had, by that time we were literally in front of the building. And one of the um, drawbacks that was particular was that the smoke was billowing from the back of the building. And at this time, you pretty much had the whole row of the um, block. You know, you just wasn't going to do your 360 unless you drove around it. So there was a little breezeway inside. We thought we could just slip back through there. And at that point, realized that we was looking at a trash fire. But what happened was, with the wood frame up top, a gust of wind came through. And uh, it was a gust of wind that just changed everything. And after that, we realized how much fire that was back there and that took a little smoke billowing up in the air to probably one of the largest fires we've had, what, since reconstruction. Yeah. So you, you actually wound up going through the building itself? the the Because this building is roughly the size of a city block, more or less. Yes, it is. So you went through the... There's a little breezeway uh, right where the Cadobas is now, between the Cadobas and the Five Guys. There's <laughs> a little breezeway there that was part of the commercial piece that was blocked... Um, as far as um, the construction type. So, so this building ran a block long. It did. Mm -hmm. And um, Rescue 2 came out of Station 10's house. 
Well, actually, we had cleared up from. But uh, you were at five to, so that you could block the doors for them. Yes. <laughs> and beat them in there. Yes. I love that tactic. Um, so we were a split second putting water on the fire. Excellent. <laughs> so we pulled up a couple of things, as Robbie said, and one behind us on the screen is the uh, front page newspaper yeah. article. Wow. Um, which was Firestorm. And of course, as we get into it and we slide some of these. Um, uh, photos through exactly what you're describing which was you were on i guess what we would consider in in this day and age the charlie side or the back side of this building was the trash chute uh and the trash chute that ran down to the dumpster that ultimately i think they determined was most likely the ignition source yes sir and then it ran up and the wind took it away absolutely um the approach that uh, Rescue 2 um, had, we came up and we positioned on the Alpha side, right in the front. Um, ironically, right across the street is the VCU Arch Building. Mm-hmm. Um, and over there, we had a few students that were looking out. And there was a hydrant over there, so we tried to, well, we did secure that hydrant. And um, once we realized how much fire was there, securing that hydrant, we had the flame, it was almost like, a devil hand come across with fire and it literally pushed us back uh, up against the building. Um, There was not too much traffic to deal with. You have a situation like that, you don't have much um, bystanders coming by. The students at the door, they closed the door so we couldn't get in that building. And at that point, we had flame over top of us. We couldn't go either side and hit the flame. All you could see in, in any direction you looked at, you saw this flame. Sure. And just knew that was the end. And all of a sudden, uh, the flame subdued. And I remember seeing this uh, Jeep Cherokee. It was a white Jeep Cherokee. And you just saw the paint started to combust on its own and just start puckering up. And next thing you know, it's fully involved. But that was a bigger picture, and that was to deal with the fire. Whose itself. rig was it that uh, I think might have been on the front side that was lost? <laughs> Well, let's not you know call who's it, a, it is even let, before you let, ask a question. Let's not call uh, it a loss. Was, we really didn't know <laughs> no, that. It, it was uh, it, it was mine, uh, Station Fives, and uh, had a Seagreave engine. And the thing about it was, when we first pulled up, there was nothing showing on the front side of the building. And like I said, it was under construction. There were um, windows, um, openings, but there was no windows in it. Uh, the, the retail section where they were going to put the retail section. So we dragged an inch and three quarter through that building and got on the back side of it and looked up and we could see the fire uh, around the dumpster and the fire chute, and, and I mean the uh, chute. And so, uh, um, you know, everything seemed to go accordingly. I mean, we were starting to hit it. and, and uh, But like I said uh, prior, the wind started to blow. And so we really got concerned with the building directly behind that building, uh, um, towards the uh, south side of that building. <clears throat> and so we were starting to make arrangements to move equipment and things so we could get a, you know, at least protect that uh, as well. And then it seemed like five minutes or so, the wind just shifted and started to um, blow towards 95. And so we, in turn, started to come out of the building, drag the inch and three quarter with us. And by the time we got around the front side, there were flames actually showing out the front of the building at that time. So it was minutes from the initial ignition in the trash chute, which is kind of in the the pictures we've just been able to put up on Mm -hmm. the slides now, that came up and ran up on the center part of the building, just like Sylvester said. But it was only minutes before it engulfed the entire Broad Street 
and then leaped over to clay. Absolutely. It uh, was like a tinderbox. It, it was literally like a tinderbox. And I, it, it seemed like seconds. I'm sure it was minutes. But uh, to see that whole building engulfed like it was and like Sylvester said, I mean, it was like reaching across uh, with a fist of fire across Broad Street and starting to uh, – Send embers and things to rooftops and, and igniting them as well. You know, the textbook people say that uh, 45 seconds your fire is going to double in size, mm -hmm. you know, when they just talk about this. You took a building from four stories and a trash chute to engulfing the whole building in just a matter of minutes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and there have been several other significant fires uh, as recently as a year or two ago, one in Alexandria, very similar to this, mm -hmm. and then I believe it was Raleigh took out an entire city block. Mm -hmm. Very similar. And some of the construction folks now, um, since this is the most vulnerable point of a building under yes. construction, it's before it gets sealed up with the drywall. Mm -hmm. It's still in, fr in uh, the framing aspect mm -hmm. that it's uh, a period of time of a week or two when if it's not secured and not properly um, managed, that you lose the whole block. Absolutely. Yeah. So what, what was the first alarm assignment? Like the, where they put out the call on the radio, sent the, put out the assignment by the time you got there, or was it after that? Actually, they were receiving the 911 call as you were as I was there reporting it in to them. So basically, you, were, you, you two guys were pretty much there by yourself for a while until the rest of the response units yes, got there? Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. 12.33 p.m. How long did that feel? <laughs> Uh, felt like a career. Yeah. <laughs> feels, like a, feels like a lifetime. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it. Like I said, thing, in a situation like that. I mean, you lose track of time, and so all I know is that you know we, we, were trying to fight it one way, and then all of a sudden it just reversed everything that we had just planned for, uh, and then we had to exit that side of the building, come back through, and and by the time. Uh, we got to the front. It was it was all engulfed, and and you know, you're just sitting there with your jaw dropped and saying, "How did this happen? You know, what did I miss?" And uh, because you just don't see travel fire travel like that that quickly uh, over that time period. So, and when you look back over the um, the resource, you talking like Keith said, it's a tinderbox. You had wood frame, but at the same time, you had. Um, Settling t um, tanks in the back mm -hmm. oh, for the construction stuff going absolutely, uh -huh. and as they blew, as to the fuel load, we had stuff flying everywhere, um, chunks of um, insulation, commercial mm -hmm. insulation, um, flying around. The helicopters that were flying around tried to get them. Well, I'm quite sure they wanted to capture a story, but there was a point when we needed them to leave the area because what they're doing is. Um, let's say compressing the natural dissipation of the heat and smoke. So as that was um, compressing it, it wasn't dissipating like it should have. Creating even more And then problems. all of a sudden when a couple So their rotor wash was pushing rather than a natural chimney mm -hmm. effect, their Absolutely. rotor wash was actually sending Absolutely. more heat and, and byproducts down on you. Yes. Until a couple of, of those um, settling tanks blew. And they usually leave it. after that, huh? They do. <laughs> they do. So um, your first assignment would have been... And I'm going all off of memory now. Just something in the area of five and six and ten, um, and you would have pulled ten. from the hill at that point. Yeah, um, yeah, because two truck what? I know came across uh, the boulevard. Was this the Quint days? No, I hadn't gotten to the Quint. No days. Okay. Uh, well, actually, we we had the Quints, um, but we were transitioning. 
And the reason I say that is because in some of the pictures, we've seen as many as five or six ladders at one time, which yep. after the Quint days, you went down to only a couple of ladders? Yeah, we, we weren't operating. Um, we, like I keep saying, we were transitioning because we also had a bunch of FRVs as well uh, around that time. Um, what was so unique about it is that um, some of the 75-foot Quints that you do see, it actually gave us um, a favorable advantage as far as most of the trucks having a ladder on them but as far as going to the actual concept as far as how we're going to operate from ladders and engines uh, we had not like you said we were in a transition but we had not really fully went over to this um, full you know quint concept like we should have this fire surpassed you before you ever got there absolutely as soon as that wind kicked and grabbed it took it over to clay street and over to 95 Mm -hmm. So an interesting aspect is that I live in Hanover and I was in the garage when the alarm went off. It's, um, I was tied into city police pretty closely at the time. And one of the officers that I was working with called and said, hey, you got to you got to get down to the city and see this thing. This is crazy. And from the Atlee area of Hanover, I just stepped out of my garage and saw the plume of smoke. And there were there were so many resources needed that we deployed uh, the tactical units that were available mm -hmm. to knock on doors and clear out as much of Clay Street and move mm -hmm. through because you guys had your hands full. There was not an extra hand uh, in sight. In fact, you pulled the rookie school, yes, I believe, the, mm -hmm. uh, from drill school and brought them out because you just needed help. Mm -hmm. And we didn't know any of this was going on uh, it, until we started seeing different color trucks and right. you know people just because it was just ever evolving we were always seemed like we were moving hose to one side of the street to the other and this was just when we first started with the four inch hose and you know that holds a lot of water you can't just move it from one side but then you'd have a chief come up say we, that got to go over there and so we had to shut down move it and sure. uh, relocate and things as far as that nature because again i mean it, every time you turned around it seemed like a, a rooftop of a building was on fire and that's when we started looking at it and say wow you know where are we going to cut this off at absolutely and uh so i mean it, you get a <clears throat> i can only relate it to what california goes through when they have the wildfires because they change they make their own winds they you know everything that you just sit and say what am i safe i mean is it is this automatically with turning golf was you know with fire you just never you, you didn't know because it was the craziest event that i had ever been associated with nothing since Keith, you made a comment when we were on the phone together that um, along those lines, California wildfires, mm -hmm. and actually had the thought process of we're going to cut this off at 95. Use yeah, 95 absolutely. as a fire break. That's I mean, what we, that's, if it was any strategic planning, yes, that was where we were going to make our stand. Mm -hmm. And even then, there was some uh, embers that had gotten across and started some grass fires and things on the other side of 95. So yeah, it, it was uh, it was just that kind of a day and and uh, that kind of an event. You yeah. lost a second significant building, I think, over at uh, Clay and one of the cross streets. Uh, yes, actually, uh, right there on the uh, corners, um, building that I, had, you know, noticed quite often when I was um, attending VCU myself. Kind of had a gothic look, like a gymnasium kind of f facade on the front. Mm -hmm. It did. Um, but again, you know, the, it also due to the fire. Incredible. There, um, just to give everybody some kind of scope of this thing, it's uh, you, you, you mentioned um, houses on Clay Street. There were six houses on West, West Clay that were burned. That mm -hmm. and that's 
two blocks off of Broad Street. Mm-hmm. So across across Broad Street itself, the block between Broad and Marshall, mm-hmm. crossed from Marshall to Clay and lit houses on fire over there. And there was even one report that said there were embers flying as far away as the Richmond Raceway. Yes, I mean, oh, and yeah, as, that was him as the crow flies. You, you just can't can't fathom burning material getting that far, but assuming this is a wind-driven fire, mm-hmm. that, that obviously did happen. And just the, you know, we mentioned evacuating homes. They talked about 50 homes in the Carver neighborhood being evacuated. Uh, two houses on on Marshall Street and six houses on West Clay were involved in fire. And I, I know Chestfield units went to Richmond and actually fought some of the fires on yes. Clay Street. Mm-hmm. And there's a good friend, Captain of mine, she, when I was – she heard that I was doing this podcast with you guys. She said, yep, that's my most memorable call, too, is running a, a row house fire on Clay Street in the right. city mm-hmm. of Richmond. So. We had a BC over there, um, Chief Madison, um, and we had companies and uh, some individuals that I've um, spoken with since the fire. They were literally told to pick a house because at that point that company was there to do Water supply, fire attack, rescue, overhaul, everything. It was just, it was just so it was many of them. It Pick one. Fun. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Did this ever get up t- to a second alarm? Were you, did you have alarm assignments at the time? Three alarm. It was a three alarm fire. And one of the, um, and you know, fortunately, we, we, we have these incidents and then we learn from them, not just on the fire side, but as you can imagine now, uh, the building construction side has learned from it. And um, this fire actually went to three alarms. Um, the unique piece was how the incidents were coming in. There were so many individual incidents coming in, and our system that we had of old was not tying it all in to Broad Street. You know, you, you wouldn't think that, okay, you got a house fire coming up on Clay Street, and as far as being able to say that, you know, is this from a hostile fire that's already in place. So a lot of these incidents that were popping up were just not tied back. And then after you've depleted all your resources, uh, that's the end of the alarms right there. Wow. So what, what, you know, some of the other challenges, I mean, you, you guys were had your hands full right off the rip of this thing. What, uh, what ultimately do you think led to what is a successful outcome? No fatalities, but a couple of people were injured in the process. But uh, thankfully, nobody seriously. But No, uh, nobody seriously. Nobody seriously. Yeah. What, do you, what, do you, what do you attribute that? that level of success yes it was a ter- terrible fire a bunch of buildings burned but everybody went home at the end of the day that's the successful yeah. piece how do you, what do you attribute to that I well think, man, go ahead. I, for one the time of day uh not many people were in their homes and things uh, of that nature uh, luck <laughs> luck I've, had an awful lot to do with it because if you think that you're going to sit there and put this fire out with uh you know the the supplies that we had there it just wasn't going to do so we had a lot of luck the good lord was looking after us because uh mm-hmm. it could have very well turned into a, a bigger tragedy than what it was and so yeah the time of day i think played a very big influential because uh, as sylvester said you know it wasn't too much traffic it was right around lunchtime but uh, you know, Broad Street was pretty clear to, for us to operate and, and uh, uh, things of that nature. If I could go back on the Seagrave, because I know I did catch a lot of heat on that, um, it's still, uh, either, even though the uh, hose bed caught on fire, it still was able to pump to the arts uh, building of VCU because that was still under construction at the time. So they actually pumped to the system. So it's so still working. It, yeah, so it, 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 it did what it Seagrave was made for to you. Do. And the Seagrave company 
uh, heard about the story that happened here in Richmond, and they fully renovated the whole uh, engine uh, back to its original. And so uh, we kind of lost track with it. The city uh, put it in the, uh, the heap to get rid of. Sure. And, and uh, so we kind of followed it, and lucky enough that we were able to purchase it many years later uh, because we knew the significance of it, uh, purchased as, as our local. So we are in uh, possession of that Seagrave, uh, 98 Seagrave right now. Wow. And so we use it for special events and things uh, for the local 995 uh, uh, events. So it, it, yeah, I mean, it, it, it just seems like everything kind of ties back into this VCU fire. But, uh, I mean, the men and women of this department, I, I salute them. Everything that we possibly can do and our neighbors uh, all around that came in that we, again, this was ever changing. We didn't even know who, who was here or anything else, but uh, we, uh, we were very lucky that day for sure. So when you give some points to the rookies and some of the new folks and you get them prepared for just going out on that call, or in this case, you weren't even dispatched on it. You just looked up in there with smoke and you mm -hmm. left the house. The importance of readiness, and, and some folks call it mission ready or battle ready, that uh, you know, you go to a, a lot of alarms, smells and bells, and it it doesn't sink in. And then you roll up on something like this. It, there's no time to then get yourself buttoned up. No. So you try to try to give them the information that they're going to need for the worst case scenario every time. Absolutely. And you know how tunnel vision. You you tell people don't you know don't get tunnel vision. This was a day that you didn't do that because if you came in with just a plan A, you were already at a plan Z in a matter of minutes. And Absolutely. So, uh, this is something that uh, is one for the ages, and yeah, I mean, it, it, it was a good learning experience for me personally, and I tried to take that back to the company and, and uh, people I work with from that point on to say, and, you know, you go there with the right intentions and the good intentions, but things can change on you very quickly, so you have to be aware of your surroundings. Sylvester, you mentioned it did spawn some changes in the radio system. Uh, you know, go, it, back, go back to yourselves. Did it change how you, you worked in the front seat of that engine? Did it talk? Did you change with how you interacted with your crews? Absolutely. Um, with me, most of all, um, Philippians 4-6, take nothing for granted. Mm -hmm. It puts me back into that seat, and that's why it's significant to look at your notes on the CAD and also um, check your crew, make sure that everyone is putting on their gear and they're treating it with the sense of urgency um, that's there. Um, going back to the fire, um, being up on the um, arts building was so ironic because we were doing a, we had just did a pre-plan on the arts building, so that's why I was a little more familiar with the um, heating elements and the systems that they have on the back of the arts building, so we knew we had to try and keep that building from igniting as well. And while we were up there, I looked over and I could see something but a gym and dorms after that, so... Ended up doing the evacuation. We even evacuated um, Carver School, Maggie Walker School. Um, gave the evacuation so that they could, what I thought was safe enough, reroute them up to the Ash Center. Um, so, like you said, I mean, there, there were so many resources that partnered and helped out with that situation. But as far as me moving forward, um, again, you lead by example. Um, I don't take the calls for it granted. And at the same time, you value and understand now the communication piece, I think, was one of the best ways that we brought about change with this department. And that was being able to identify that when these incidents come in, assign them their separate um, 
channel. Type channel. Mm -hmm. By doing that, it removes a lot of the other clutter and all the other, you know, everyday conversation that may be taking place over your dispatch channel. So that was a, um, a piece that, that helped us out. And now then in 2004, did you have the technology there? Did you have the radio system to, to be able to do that, or did that help, uh, help spawn the new radio system? I don't system? even know mm -hmm. if we had individual radios at that time, did we? I, I don't. I don't remember. I, we did. We, we we had the individual radios. Uh, yeah, because that was still there were about seven thousand a piece. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you always hear that part. We had the individual radios, but we had not fully went over to uh, the the new system the of being able to um, have your own. You know, split uh, tax things up channel. into different tax. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and at the same time. You know, you could imagine uh, when we started working on the regional plans, I think that was another key piece. Sure. Whereas we would assist each other and have some mutual agreements and mutual aid um, across county, city lines or whatever. But when it got to the point where we realized that, you know, our high-rise policy and everything else, and you think about all of that that came out of that, and that was having regional policies, and it made us more of a, let's say, a metro regional fire mm -hmm. um um, and this fire department opposed to having our little borders that we just stayed with fragmented them. right mm -hmm. absolutely you know, and I think it changes the inspection uh, also you know that um, we I'm not gonna say we lax or anything as far as that but hey, you, you, these things go on and you know I, I, it, it, it recalibrated making sure that we were getting in there when these buildings were under construction because you know city goes through a a spell where they build you, you may have five or six buildings under construction and it takes a lot to go through and keep up with all that well there's such a boom now with the apartments absolutely yes. up and down broad uh, absolutely still. yeah and that's the scary part when i see them i said oh well you know this can happen again sure. and so um but yeah you just you look at things a little bit differently when you ride down the street now and and when i ride through that area i just you know it all captures back and say wow i, I I can't believe what happened and what's transpired out of because growth, you know, from tragedy becomes growth. And I mean, thank God for VCU and they built it right back. And, and so that area looks great and beautiful. But um, yeah, the events of that day will always, always live with me for sure. So from a safety standpoint, accountability is so important to all mm -hmm. of us. Um, how did you feel about accountability? Did your crews even know that, that the two of you had your arms around them the whole time? Well, um, what we, Keep that both. We're, we're, we're working, folks. We were, for the most part, there with them. Um, and, and I guess once we weathered that initial flame coming across Broad Street, at that point, when that didn't take us out, the divine intervention was in place, sure. and your confidence started building up a little bit more, and you realized that, okay, we're going to make this happen. On the rescue, you had how many folks? Uh, actually, we were fortunate that day. We had five folks on the uh, truck that day. How about five? Four. Okay, so you show up with this with nine people. And mm -hmm. 200 gallons of water. <laughs> Unbelievable. Mm. That was the key and, part. <laughs> and all the fire you ever wanted. Like I said, it was uh, it, it was so dark around there from the smoke, you, you couldn't even see your hand in front of your face. Literally, and I say that because right. a lot of people say, oh, I, you could not oh. see your hand in front of your face. Guys, I, I mean, I've got a couple other questions for you that kind of step away from that fire. Anything else you want to share that really stand that stands out in your mind about either that day or the aftermath? Completing the report. Uh, <laughs> That's why you let him beat you in. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> there were approximately, I think I was right at about 100 
exposures, you know, when you count the vehicles involved and all of that. Um, Did you no, have to do one for his engine, too? <laughs> wow, Rob. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to jump. Well, you ought to seen the letter I wrote on it. <laughs> you want me to talk about the uh, injury report I had to do with yeah, it? Yeah, I understand. Uh, yeah, we won't get into that either. <laughs> How does that letter start off? <laughs> dear, dear Chief, no one was more surprised than me. Well, so, um, 100 different, essentially 100 fire reports you had to uh, fill out. Yes, and and that was primarily when you look at our old system because it wasn't so much that this one fire had all these exposures attached to it. You had to go back and attach so many other incidents to this one, um, and 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 that was challenging. And then when you think about, imagine being on your uh, single family dwelling, and unfortunately, you may have to call Red Cross to come in and help the family. Well, this was a little different. You know, you're trying to get people to come in and provide the. The, the resources just to help mitigate and get people back to normalcy. And after that, you start, you know, the city would put out, you know, phone numbers, you know, if you were involved, impacted by this, call this number. And somehow it all came back to Station 10, Rescue 2, and everyone was saying, well, this is for Henderson. No, 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 we, <laughs> we're a team here. We <laughs> share this responsibility. Uh -huh. You guys came on that morning, right? Yes. Yes, we did. <clears throat> when did you first get a break? Um... My break that I, I, I remember, um, we went back to Station 10 because I was told that, you know, the subway there was nice enough to have some subs there for us. It was somewhere between, I would say, 8, 8.30. At night. At night. And when I got there, it was just a heel of a six-foot sandwich that was left there and literally like a croissant. There was no meat involved in it at all, just a... They were looking out for you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, they were. But um, all in all, then as far as 9 o'clock, we were right back on scene. So. so it was literally a rehab break, and then you're back. Yeah, and, and and to, to piggyback on what Sylvester's saying with the reports and everything, then you you know you had all these legal issues. Yes. You know, people lost their cars, and they wanted to know how they lost their cars and who's the responsible party for replacing them and all this, too. So, mm -hmm. you know. We kind of lost touch with the legality of it, Certainly. but, you know, as soon as they started to do the investigation and started to see that, you know, uh, this chute was full of uh, dust and sawdust and all Absolutely. these other things and maybe a cigarette right. had just, you know, been thrown into it or... or what not to say. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, and that was right. a big thing, too. You know, they, they uh, the department came back and said, you know, you make sure you, the words that you're saying Absolutely. so that uh, we're not, you know, in court somewhere. Right. So, uh, but... Uh, it, and that went on for uh, Lord knows how long. So. Right. Well, uh, until they actually came down and concluded the um, the investigation. Uh, another piece was um, very unfortunate, and it, um, it 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 pains me to this day. And trust me, this is not the only time that Keith and I think about this. I think about it periodically when I think about Broad Street, and there was uh, someone lost a life that day. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were driving and. From what I understood, it was a matter of not having the sufficient oxygen once the power was turned off in the area. Um, that really bothered me. And so there um, was a To find out that that was not, well, yeah, we were told that too. Yeah, for the most part, from the legal side, as Keith talked about, this was not attached to the fire. Um, so the power company did what they thought they should, and that was shut down blocks Absolutely. of power. Yeah, you, you that's, had that's our relationship the, the with The power them. had to be off. But all of a sudden, it. we've realized now that the secondary effect of that, the collateral damage, is that there are folks who are, need that life-saving power. and or unprepared at the time. Certainly. So that's, yeah. a, that's an education piece that's come mm -hmm. out of it. And see, that's what the fire service 
doesn't capture, you know, because when you get there, you put the fire out, you get your information, you go back and do the report, but you don't see what the struggles that the family has mm-hmm. to, you know, to uh, pay for, you know, all new things. And, and, and I wish that, you know, we could do a better job, but I don't mm-hmm. know how we can do it. But it would be nice to be able to revisit because, I mean, we go on an EMS call and we don't know if the party, we got them to the hospital, they were living, but we don't know if they survived or not. And we just lose track of them. And HEPA laws and everything, we understand all that. But that that's the, I guess. It's a disconnect. It is. It and is. and, and the, the, the sadness that you don't get to follow up with all these things to see what's uh, transpired out of them. But. And that, that was the most profound thing. I, I went to the fire marshal's office in no two. And that was the most pr- profound impact on me because as the investigator, I was there with the companies. Mm-hmm. I got to interview the first in crews. I got to interview the family that night or that afternoon, but I also wound up dealing with them for another week and seeing that long-term impact to the to the people. Mm-hmm. They didn't they didn't get injured. There wasn't a thing wrong with them, but their life was upended because Absolutely. they can't go back home mm-hmm. and you know. It's, just small, memorable things yeah. that are lost. Yeah. And, uh, that, that had a big impact on me the rest of my career. Absolutely. I received a, um, a phone call from a gentleman in Florida, and it was just so ironic because it was one of dozens of calls that I received, and this one stood out because the knowledge I knew about the um, vehicle firsthand. The gentleman said his daughter was a, a student, I think she was a sophomore there. She was working at Starbucks. And she had the white Jeep and had double shot on the plate. And that was the one that we literally saw just start to combust. And the father had told his daughter to keep full coverage on the vehicle. The mother told her, just get liability. And for shopping purposes, she went with the mother. And um, so they kept calling me back and, you know, just... I mean, other than just trying to reach, pull out the money out your pocket to help them, it, it was just, like you said, the, the, the sad side of what people truly go through. And Keith, you know, we do so much. Uh, we'll do everything we can to help individuals out. Um, but then sometimes we, too, run out of resources. And then sometimes, as Keith said, mentioned, Keith mentioned, we don't always know the follow-up and end result of what they actually end up going through. Yeah. So... It brings up a great point, Captain, when you talk about this, that there people want to say thank you for the great things that, that people in public safety do. And, you know, before COVID, they were able to bring a cake by the station yes. or some cookies or, or a thank you. But there are some, some avenues that they can support the union, right. for instance, and, and to support the, uh, the departments wherever they are locally. Uh, and I encourage folks to do that. And I don't know if we're prepared right now in this podcast to give out some of that information, but... But to do that so that you can say thank you in another way that supports the men and women that do this every day and and all night long. Keith, do you guys have anything in the city now that uh, support families in the aftermath of these kind of incidents? We do. We we have our our family uh, foundation in the city of Richmond. Uh, Many years or several years ago, we found the need for it that uh, sometimes our brothers and sisters, whether financially, or whatever you know we're there to help them in every which way we can and so uh, uh, they started this organization and it's been um, up and running now and uh, used many times but uh, I can get you that information 
and let you add to this at Perfect. a later date. I'll, uh, I'll take that information and Absolutely. add it to the notes, and uh, folks can look at that uh, for sure or drop us an email and we'll put them in contact with the yeah. right people. And the Red Cross. I mean, the Red Cross, everybody knows them and what they do. Uh, they called out any time of day or night, and they're there for you, I, and it's just a great organization as well. So, Not right. a better ham sandwich. <laughs> and the rehab one that we have yeah yeah rehab one that's uh that's made up of all retirees they come back at a moment's notice um and they've been with us now for three or four years they we saw the need that rehab and we just didn't do a very good job with it now they uh even bought an old fire station over on seven uh on sims Street. avenue it's uh station 17 they're doing their uh, renovations i doing rode past the yes, other day absolutely and so uh uh, they're a great team, and uh, we can't thank them enough because they really have uh, stepped up when, when there was a need, and we just couldn't fill it, so they have done that and oh, uh, awesome. done it well. I'll wrap this up with one final question. One of the pieces of feedback, this, this podcast hadn't, been, hadn't even gone live yet, and uh, one of the pieces of feedback that we got was uh, they really like to hear um, those pearls of wisdom from the senior folks who in the department are retirees. And uh, I did the math here. I combined 62 years of fire service experience with you two. Um, if you had five minutes in front of the next recruit academy that's going to graduate next week, what's one piece of advice you would give them for a successful career going forward? Wow. Value your job. Stay ready. Use your time wisely. Make sure you stay prepared. And at the same time, there's a natural progression in life to advance and move ahead. Stay true to your knowledge. Stay true to each other. Put each other first. Put your families there because all of it is going to be challenged for your success. Your family, unfortunately, sometimes our family takes sacrifices just for us to be at work. And God knows when the overtime day comes up and sometimes you're trying to take advantage of that situation. But at the same time, trying to increase your knowledge and to value and listen to one another so that you can be ready and prepared and spend your money wisely. That's, that's you know, one of the things that I uh, recently found out is that the financial hardship that comes back on a lot of people in the fire service uh, from unfortunate suicides and just some of the unnecessary stress that only comes back to all the other issues that you're already dealing with with such a you know um, challenging and compromised uh, profession so I think my take on it is learn everything you can about your district and the people that live within it and reside in mm -hmm. it because everybody has a story and if you don't take time to listen to that story, then you're not going to get the full impact of the fire service. I, I lived in, uh, worked in some of the poorest um, communities that Richmond has. And I, on some extended calls that we would go on, I would always try to pick uh, uh, more of a senior person out and just, you know, listen to their story. And they're so proud of where they live. And, I mean, they would they said, if you got a minute, come into my house. And it was it was immaculate. And I'm just sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, you know, why is this person in the situation they are? Sometimes it's their own choice. Sometimes it's maybe a health issue or, or some other thing that put them there. 
but it doesn't mean that they can't do and, and be clean and, and take pride in their home. And so this job, if you allow it, it will teach you everything that you need to know, social issues, the whole nine yards. Yes. What we're going through now, uh, I, I sent a message out yesterday on just look at and, and you know, take care of each other because we are a circle. We are a circle that's not going to be broken. We can put away and, and put beside all the things that are going on in communities and our government and everything else, but to the brotherhood and sisterhood, we are true to one another and make sure of that each and every day. So if you allow it to, this job will fulfill you in every which way possible, but if you don't, you're, you're cheating yourself. Great point. Well, thank you very much. Um, and I'll, I'll, I wanted to get this quote in from Chief Carter, Chief Melvin Carter, the chief of the department now in Richmond, um, who I worked with when he was his executive director of fire programs. Um, he was interviewed on the 15th anniversary of this fire for a Channel 8, w, WRSC-TV Channel 8 um, I remember. story. And, and his the quote out of that story is, um, you had buildings on fire, you had houses on fire, said Richmond Fire Chief Melvin Carter. You had cars on fire, you had fire trucks on fire. Chief Carter says the three-alarm blaze, which required 200 firefighters from across the region to battle 23 different fires, was the second biggest in the city's history behind only the burning of Richmond at the end of the Civil War. And I think that's just very profound how he put that is how big in scope this incident was. And Captain Henderson, Captain Andes, thank you guys for coming out here this afternoon, sharing some time with you, with us, sharing your story, and uh, thank you for your service to the citizens of Richmond and the Commonwealth. Thank I you. Appreciate it's been that our very honor. Much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Just one final note. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, or suggestions for future episodes, please reach out. You can get to us via email at firehouselogbook at gmail.com, or you can reach out to us through the social platforms, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our Twitter handle is FDLogbook. The Instagram handle is FDLogbookPodcast. And on Facebook, you can search out Firehouse Logbook Podcast and find us there. Also, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast so you know when the new episodes drop. You can do that through subscribing to the RSS feed at the website, thefirehouselogbook.captivate.fm, or hitting the subscribe button on whatever podcasting platform you listen to. Once again, thanks to Wheat for helping out with co-hosting duties, to Captain Sylvester Henderson and Captain Keith Andes from the City of Richmond for sharing their story with us today. Everyone be safe, and we'll see you next time.